welcome to another episode of Baroque Banter. I'm Erin Helliard, Artistic Director of Pinchgut Opera. We've been talking about scene types in Baroque opera. So far, we've covered the incantation scene and the sleeping scene. And please do check those episodes if you've missed them. But today, we're going to be looking at another very influential and important component of operatic and musical history. And that is the lament. That was Susan Graham and Le Concert d'Astrée, conducted by Emmanuel Aim in probably the most famous lament of Baroque music, Dido's Lament from Purcell's Dido and Aeneas. Laments are vocal pieces based on mournful texts. Many of you know and love that piece, and you might recognise some elements that make it so emblematic of laments in general. We'll cover them all in detail today. But you can probably hear that in Dido's Lament, there is a repeating bass line over which Dido sings. It's as if she's trapped within a never-ending circle of her own despair. Repeating bass lines are certainly one aspect of laments, and indeed, the genre is associated with a particular kind of bass line that we'll call the descending tetrachord. Here's what a descending tetrachord sounds like. Purcell's Lament is a chromatic embellishment of the basic model. With a little cadence tacked onto the end. So the tetrachord, it's a scale of four notes that outline a perfect fourth. Following the association of minor with mournful and powerful feelings that had begun in the 16th century, the lament is always in a minor key. We'll hear a lot of descending tetrachords and embellishments on the basic model today, but laments aren't just about repeating ground bases. When opera was first invented, laments already had a long and illustrious literary history, stretching from Greek tragedy and Ovid's Heroides through to Ariosto's Orlando Furioso and Tazzo's Gerusalemme Liberata, those great epic poetry poems from the 16th century that provided so many stories for opera. The lament occupied a privileged status in European literature as it stood apart from the general narrative and provided an exceptional moment of emotional climax and intense expression. Throughout its history, the lament provided an occasion for formal experimentation and development for both librettists and composers. And for performers, the lament was a vehicle in which they could display their powers of expressive rhetoric. Laments were also mainly associated with the female voice and with female performers. Like the sleeping scene, the lament had an existence outside the opera house. But the sleeping scene only found sporadic existence in French chamber works. By contrast, 
The Lament had a rich and fruitful development in Italian music as chamber music, and this took place side by side with its development in opera. Its important presence in both the chamber and the opera house was clearly due to its great ability to affect an audience. It also gave extraordinary scope to performers in which they could show off their emotional prowess. A contemporary account from the 1670s gives us the scope of the intensity of the lament and indicates how much it was prized as an especially expressive genre for performance. She began to sing a lament, precisely made to measure for her of most beautiful poetry and most perfect music. Now, whoever did not witness that scene cannot know what it is to transform oneself in song. She moved around and, as the nature of the lament required, prayed, emoted, called her betrayed, her betrayer beloved. Gently she persuaded him, looked at him, and exuded passion from her eyes. She cried with tears of trust, protested that her heart was the altar where the fire of an immense affection always burned, that he was the king of the entire realm of her thoughts, that therefore he shouldn't abandon her. She followed with desperate actions, with great violence, and so much so that she seemed actually to be an enraged fury. Naming at one point her rival, she turned her eyes to heaven and exclaimed, Ah! Ah! Let him be cursed! She returned then with her heart to the beginning, and blaming for her fate more the wrath of destiny than the inconstancy of her lover, she finished the lament and fainted. This account is especially interesting as it outlines all of the multivalent characteristics of the dramatic structure of the lament. A character in the period of the great flourishing of the lament in the 17th century shifted from anger to fear to self-pity to attempts at understanding and finally to desolation and an acknowledgement of the excesses and futility of their emotional outburst. At the beginning of opera's history, when the monodic style was first being championed, the lament was singled out by opera's advocates as the best kind of text to move an audience to pity, thereby purging them of stronger and more volatile passions. In all things, the great Monteverdi was the innovator. So let's look now at two famous laments of Monteverdi and see how these two very different kinds of laments were influential in the development of the genre. The first kind of lament I will call the reciting lament. These are highly expressive, irregular settings of lengthy dramatic texts in which each word is painted and theatricalized in recitative style. There are not many hummable tunes in these incredible soliloquies. Rather, they represent what composers at the time might have thought the lyric poets of ancient Greece sounded like a kind of speech singing sung to the accompaniments of plucked instruments that suggested ancient lyres and kitharas. Occasionally, there are little melodic refrains that suggest a thought of or feeling that won't budge, but there are no tunes. The second kind of lament is what I'll call the ground bass lament. And that is like Dido's lament. We have a repeating ground bass over which the vocalist laments. And these are much more tuneful the variety of melodic invention that can take place over the stubborn, unyielding and circular effect of the bass line suggests a character that is 
highly emotional and expressive. In fact, the lament derives much of its emotional power from the powerful intertwining of this two-part texture of the bass line and the vocal line. Sometimes they grind together in powerful dissonance, and sometimes they're resigned in perfect consonance. Let's look at the reciting lament first. Here is the opening of the paradigmatic example by Monteverdi of the famous Lamento d'Arianna. That was the opening of Lamento d'Arianna with Anne-Sophie van Otter and Musica Antigua Köln. This lament is from one of the most famous lost operas in history, Monteverdi's L'Arianna from 1608. By all accounts, this was one of Monteverdi's most masterly achievements, and so its loss to us is even more regrettable. But one part of the opera was saved from oblivion. Monteverdi published the lament separately, first as a five-voice madrigal, then as a monody, and then as a sacred hymn. In fact, it was so famous that in 1640, 30 years after it was written, a commentator remarked that no house with a harpsichord or fiorbo lacked a copy of Arianna's Lament. As Suzanne Cusack relates, to a large extent, Monteverdi's fame and historical status rested for centuries on the universal appreciation of his achievement in the celebrated Lamento d'Arianna, which was among the most emulated and therefore influential works of the early 17th century. Monteverdi created the lament as a recognisable genre of vocal chamber music and as a standard scene in opera that would become crucial, almost genre-defining, to the full-scale public operas of 17th century Venice. Although it cannot be pinned down in exactly the same way, other scholars have even argued that Monteverdi's Lamento d'Arianna was as groundbreaking for 17th century music as Wagner's Tristan and Isolde was for the late 19th century. The power of this particular reciting lament derives from the great strength of the text by the poet Rinuccini. It is clearly comparable to the greatest of Shakespeare's soliloquies. The lament's overall impact derives from a variety of elements, both textural and musical. Refrains, recurring periods of rising and falling of intensity, shifts between sections of disagreement and synchronization of voice and bass line, and sequences and other patterns. The Ariana Lament operated as a paradigm for close to half a century. Its impact extended south to Rome and north to Venice, where it affected the composition of laments in both chamber music and opera well into the 1650s. Always a response to unrequited love, whether the cause was death or merely infidelity, a lament could happen anywhere in an opera. Operas usually contain several, often for different characters and dispersed freely throughout the three acts, although one was invariably reserved for the protagonist to be sung at a climactic moment just before the denouement. Let's hear a full reciting lament now in the style of the famous Lamento d'Arianna. Let's choose the first lament from The Coronation of Popea, for the injured empress Ottavia. It has all the literary and musical hallmarks of the reciting lament. Moments of anger are shot through with moments of regret. 
Despised queen, she addresses herself, wretched wife of the Roman emperor. What am I doing? Where am I? What am I thinking? Questions are unanswered. Life is bitterly dissected. Born free by the will of nature and heaven, we are made slaves by marriage. Reciting laments need good performers to bring them to life, and none more than Natalie Christie Peluso in the role of Atavia from Pinchgut's 2017 production of Popeye. Il matri 
That was Natalie Christie Peluso singing Disprezzata Regina from Monteverdi's Coronation of Popeye with the Orchestra of the Antipodes, conducted by myself. It's a wonderful example of a reciting lament, the kind made famous by Monteverdi's paradigmatic Lamento d'Arianna. Laments were overwhelmingly sung by female characters, like Ottavia, but occasionally they were given to male characters as well. One of the most famous laments for a male character in early opera is from Monteverdi's L'Orfeo. His lament occurs just before the denouement, and it's the protagonist's heart-wrenching lament on the fields of Thrace, after he has left the underworld and lost Eurydice forever. Monteverdi perfectly writes a kind of broken love song for Eurydice. Orfeo cannot quite sing in time with his lute, his famed eloquence is diminished by grief, regret, and a kind of numb pain. This lament ends with Orfeo angrily denouncing the love of women and collapsing in despair. Yeah. 
That was Mark Tucker in the role of Orfeo singing the final lament from Act 5 of Monteverdi's L'Orfeo with the Orchestra of the Antipodes with Anthony Walker conducting. We've heard quite a few reciting laments now. In writing their own laments, librettists and composers were clearly responding to the great model of Lamento d'Arianna. This is evident from Monteverdi's own Venetian laments, such as those of Ottavia in Poppea, but also in Return of Ulysses as well. And this is especially striking in the laments of Cavalli, which we'll turn to shortly. But now, let's move to the second lament paradigm, and that's what I call the ground-based lament. This is the more familiar kind of lament, which is built over a repeating bass pattern, most usually the descending minor tetrachord. The most famous and influential lament of this kind is also by Monteverdi, and it is called Lamento della Nympha, or the Lament of the Nymph. And it's a dramatic scene in which a shepherd's chorus frames and comments on the nymph's lament. They sing four strophes in all, while she sings six to completely different music. Monteverdi published the Lamento della Nympha in the second part of his eighth book of madrigals. The strength of the other lament texts, the Ariana-style recitatives, or the reciting laments, was their impassioned capriciousness and variability, their independence of formal indications and strictures, their openness of rhyme and meter, and their concentration of rhetorical expression. Monteverdi and Cavalli after him replaced these features with a musical technique, the repeating ground bass that allowed freedom and unpredictability even in a strophic context, that is to say where verses are repeated. And so it could work even in an aria. As Ellen Roseanne notes, musico-textual rhetoric from the older style laments was replaced by a purely musical sign, the descending tetrachord. It's an extraordinary effect and it's a uniquely operatic innovation. It's kind of a way of marshalling time and drama in a fixed repetitive pattern that allows for moments of composed expressiveness. In a way, the composer does more of the work in ground-based laments, but in reciting laments, it's the performer that does all the heavy lifting. Let's listen now to the paradigmatic example of the ground-based lament here sung by Taryn Fiebig as the grieving nymph. 
Listen for the classic descending minor tetrachord after the male chorus at the beginning, and listen also to the variety of ways Monteverdi is able to paint the different emotional states of the distressed nymph. Oh, 
That was Lamento della Nympha from the eighth book of Madrigals by Monteverdi, with Taryn Feebig as the nymph, Eric Peterson, David Greco, and Mark Donnelly as the three shepherds, and myself on harpsichord and organ, with Simon Martin Ellis on theorbo. You could hear how Monteverdi has the nymph sing expressively against the fateful repeat of the descending tetrachord. Sometimes she's resigned, sometimes impassioned, sometimes aroused, sometimes angry. We've seen now how the paradigmatic example of the reciting lament was Monteverdi's Lamento d'Arianna, and the paradigmatic example of the ground-based lament was Monteverdi's Lamento della Nympha. Both use remarkably different musical devices to portray extraordinary expressive effects. Now, what happened after Monteverdi? Well, the first substantial evidence of a recurrent relationship between the lament and the descending minor tetrachord occurs in the operas of Francesco Cavalli. These are generally distinguished by their slow tempo, their heavily stressed triple meter, and their string accompaniment, as well as a heightened effective style. Cavalli always begins the lament with just the ground bass alone. It acts as quotation marks, alerting the audience that a lament is about to take place. It occurs as a kind of framing device. Now, Cavalli never treats the lament as strictly as Monteverdi did in Lamento della Nympha. Rather, Cavalli shows incredible ingenuity and invention in the use of the ground bass, treating the tetrachord with greater freedom in each of his operas. Now let's have a look at what Cavalli can do. So I'll play again the classic descending tetrachord as we heard it in Lamento della Nympha, and I'll play it in the harmonized version. That's the classic form of the descending tetrachord. Let's see what Cavalli can do with it. The first thing you can do with the tetrachord is, as we heard in Dido's Lament, we can turn it into a chromatic variant. And indeed, we hear Cavalli do this in Egisto from 1643. Here's the bass line by itself. similar to Purcell's Dido's Lament. The other thing Cavalli does is he inverts the tetrachord. So rather than having something that goes down, he now has something that goes up. And this is from Iper Mestra, 1658. And here's the bass line by itself, and then I'll harmonize it. Thank you. 
he can also embellish the descending tetrachord and he can do that by arpeggiating it. Here's another tetrachord. This is now in another mode. And this is how Cavalli ornaments that. It's from Elio Garbolo, one of his last operas, 1667, and it sounds like this. that Cavalli does is he extends or adds in cadential patterns to close off the lament. So for example he can use the descending tetrachord and here we are in another mode and this is from Ormindo. He has the classic descending tetrachord but then he tacks on a little cadential motif. You hear that in Dido's Lament as well. Here is the bass line from Lormindo. Here another version in which he combines the descending tetrachord but then adds in another inversion. So here is in another mode and his variant of it sounds like this. And then he adds in the inversion. from Statira from As Ellen Roseanne notes, for Cavalli, the descending tetrachord ostinato essentially offered a compromise between the spontaneous expressivity of recitative and the lyrical expressivity of aria, providing a means of effective structuring without necessarily imposing closure. Now, that great repository of operatic conventions, Cavalli's Giazzone from 1649, contains three laments for the emblematic lamenting character of Isifile. Let's hear the opening lament for the character. This is a ground bass lament. Listen to the variation on the descending tetrachord as it acts as a marker 
for the lament at the beginning of the scene, signaling to the audience what is about to occur. Isifile in Cavalli's Giazzone is the classic lamenting character of 17th century opera. Her character provided the template for many other operas to come. In this opening lament, she speaks of Giazzone's love that has betrayed her. Listen also for the lirone in our performance of the work, and that's a many-stringed bowed instrument capable of harmony. There's some evidence that the lirone was associated with the lament genre. Laura Vaughan of the Orchestra of the Antipodes is one of the world's finest exponents of the lirone, and she's featured on this recording.
That was Miriam Allen and the Orchestra of the Antipodes, conducted by myself from Cavalli's Giazzone. It's the first of three laments for this extraordinary character in that opera. The text of the last of Isifile's three laments, like that of all other recitative laments, consists of an extended series of seven and eleven syllable verses. There are 67 of them in all, and very few of them are rhymed. 
rhyming couplets signal to a composer that an aria is to take place. So lament texts are quite unusual in that they have odd and asymmetrical structures. This one has fewer sections than most, only three. In the first, Isiphile hurls an accusatory, angry, ironic diatribe at Jasone, her betrayer. In the second, she pleads with the assembled company, the queen and her companions, to come to her aid against Jasone. In the final section, she bids them all farewell. The sense of formality provided by the tetrachord bass for the second section, and particularly with its evocation of a kind of giant lirone, as heard in the string accompaniment, lends a solemn tone to her address to the queen, as well as a sense of self-control. Let's hear this magnificent performance by Mary Mallon. In this lament, you'll hear the perfect blend of the reciting lament, the first section, and the ground-based lament, the second section. Here for the lashing sequences that end the first section and Miriam Allen's extraordinary performance in this performance from uh, Pinchgut Opera's production.
That was Miriam Allen in the final lament of Cavalli's Giazzone. Isifeli's monologue was among the last of Cavalli's great recitative laments. Stylistic developments in opera after the middle of the century, in particular the increasing dichotomy of aria and recitative, rendered such fluid compromise obsolete. As Ellen Rosand observes, the multiple kaleidoscopic contrasts that so eloquently portrayed the vicissitudes of the lamenting Ariana and her successes were gradually reduced to one, the contrast between preparatory recitative and lengthy weighty aria. By the mid-1650s, virtually all laments were arias, many of them strophic. Lyricism had gradually absorbed all of the expressive responsibility it had formerly shared with the tetrachord with recitative. But the descending tetrachord continued on as an emblem of lament, as Roseanne calls it. And the chromatic version, which we heard at the start of this podcast with Dido's lament, became a favourite in the 18th century. German theorists called the descending tetrachord with the chromatic alterations the passus dirasculus, which in Latin means the difficult passage. This musical sign was often used to portray suffering in the religious music of the German Lutherans. Most notably, you hear it in the work of J.S. Bach. Composers such as Handel and Vivaldi continued to use the lament bass as a marker of suffering and a heightened emotional state. You can hear the descending chromatic lament bass in Vivaldi's Vedrò con mio deletto. Gone is the delicious recitative and heightened expressivity of word-to-word painting. We had an Italian opera of the previous century. In its place is a gorgeous sheen of lyricism the perfection of the aria form. Here is Helen Sherman in our production of Vivaldi's Bayezet. Until next time. Mm-hmm.